You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Linda Yates, who is the founder and CEO of a little company called Mach 49, also a longtime CEO and board member in Silicon Valley, and also the author, most recently, of this book called The Unicorn Within, How Companies Can Create Game-Changing Ventures at Startup Speed. Welcome, Linda. Thank you. Thanks, Greg. Happy to be here. Now, look, I think what you're trying to do, both with your company and your book, is solve a problem that I think a lot of people have been perplexed by for a fairly long time. I mean, going back all the way to, to, to Schumpeter, right? So Schumpeter <laughs> talked about how we constantly need a supply of new companies because the old companies tend to get this thing that sometimes is called sclerosis, right? And nobody really knows what it is, but it seems to be like a law of nature, at least in capitalist economies, at least in the U.S., that old companies just can't seem to continuously innovate. And that's why we need the new companies. Now, the reason why I think it's puzzling to so many of us in academia is that at least theoretically, the legacy companies show up with a lot. They bring a lot to the table, whereas these startups start up with nothing. And so you ought to have a head start. You ought to have an advantage. And so I think academia hasn't quite figured this out. And I think most of the cool insight is emerging out there in the practical world. And you, in your company, you actually help companies to almost bring that whole process, which is normally done by the venture capitalists and the entrepreneurs and kind of bring it in-house. Now, to what extent is this like creating an artificial womb, like doing something that's <laughs> almost completely unnatural to those of us here in Silicon Valley? It's not unnatural, right? If you think about it, all those large companies used to be startups at one point in time. They all were founded somewhere. Now, the reality is the problem is real. If you actually look, there's three interesting statistics that's really important for people to think about. If you look at the Fortune 500 50 years ago, the average life of a company on the Fortune 500 was, 80, was 75 years. Today, it's 15 years and declining. Of those companies on the list 50 years ago, 88% of them are out of business, off the list, or completely irrelevant. That is a scary statistic. Then look at the number of unicorns that exist, which right now it's about 1,200. And even, I looked at it today, even in a pseudo-recessionary downturn, they're worth almost $4 trillion. That is a lot of value that these large companies have left on the table. Mm -hmm. And probably the most scary, most latest statistic is a survey that Price Waterhouse just did of all the CEOs at Davos. And of those CEOs, 40% of them predicted they would be out of business in 10 years if they didn't transform. So this whole concept of like, this is raising the sense of urgency among these companies. But the reality is they absolutely can reinvent themselves. They absolutely can build what we call growth engines. And those growth engines basically have four, there's, a, there's four pillars to that growth engine, to your point. Number one is the organic venture building, which is what you were just talking about. And that organic venture building is really important, but that also has to be married with venture investing, with strategic partnering, with outside startups, or even other you know, small, medium-sized businesses, et cetera, but they have to get good at strategic partnering. And then what we call targeted M&A. 
The advantage that a big company has is that big company has the advantage of basically having a very nice balance sheet, right? And so you can take a venture that you are incubating and accelerating. If you're really good at seeing what else is out there and you know what's in the ecosystem, you can marry that venture with maybe an external startup that you invest in or buy off your balance sheet. And now you've accelerated that time to when you actually can drive the most important thing, which is true growth for the company. And that's not just kind of growth for your people. That's actually true financial impact. Now, we're going to get into the details of that, but you mentioned these four different approaches, right? You know, M&A, kind of internal innovation or R&D, right? A CVC and so forth. I mean, they're usually under different roofs, right? So, you know, M&A, you've got them and they're usually like in the finance group. And then you know, the R&D is in its own group. I mean, is this a problem? I mean, kind of innovation strategy is not done in any kind of unified way? Or is that actually a feature, not a bug, right? Like let a thousand no, flowers bloom. <laughs> no, yeah. you're absolutely right. It's And this is why we are actually moving more and more. You talk about building CVCs or venture factories, but we're more and more moving to the concept of helping large companies build growth divisions. So it's not a problem if they all get along and there's actually somebody who's the conductor, who's conducting all these things. What Where it becomes a problem is we have worked with a large aerospace company where the CVC and the internal incubator hate each other, right? Well, that doesn't work. You can't yeah. work. You literally have to be integrated. You have to keep going. R&D, the interesting thing about R&D, you mentioned them, like R&D, and remember, we don't use the word innovation by design. We use the word growth because growth is measurable. Innovation has been this mushy thing we've been throwing around for how many years now? You're the academic, you will know. But, you know, it's very hard to measure innovation and nobody really has defined it. But growth, you can measure. And the interesting thing is, so yes, the CVCs can absolutely be managed by somebody over here. You could have a venture factory who could manage it over here, but they got to be the yin and the yang of each other. Where R&D comes in, and we're doing a lot of work, I'm actually writing an article right now called R&D for the 21st Century, because what you find is that the R&D groups have sucked up a lot of budget, corporate budget, mm -hmm. but they're not monetizing, commercializing anything. And so what we're teaching them is how do you basically go, if you think about the spectrum of venture creation from ideate to incubate to accelerate to scale, we're helping R&D groups, yes, still do your deep tech your science-based innovation, but be more customer-driven as you think about pushing it through the pipe and get it to the point where you actually are adding value. So sometimes the R&D groups now in the modern day are actually becoming the home for the CVC and the home for the incubation activity or acceleration activity. So it doesn't really matter where it lives. It matters that it is very robust, very rigorous, very disciplined, and that it fits within the context of a global 1000 company. The problem with a lot of people is they think, oh, I'm just going to be Y Combinator. I'm going to throw spaghetti against the wall, hope it sticks. I'll have money and mentors. Well, that works for Y Combinator because Y Combinator has limited partners. They can invest in 20 and only have two succeed because those two will return enough that make their limited partners want to invest in the next fund. That does not work for a large public company. <laughs> a large public company needs to have more wins. They need to have methodology. They need to have, they need to be disciplined about what they expect and when they kill something. <laughs> that is, that's really important. And so 
all of these pieces from the M&A to the strategic for the to the strategic partnering to the investing and to the organic venture building they can live different places but they have to basically be driven by a common a common reason for being starting all the way at the board in the C, at the end of C suite well look i know you're not an historian but I want you to speculate a bit, right? Because you mentioned it hasn't always been this way, right? It used to be that companies could stay on the S&P 500 for 75 years. And if you look at companies like DuPont and Standard Oil and General Motors, I mean, these companies were AT&T. I mean, these were incredibly innovative companies and they were able to continually crank out kind of new ideas. I mean, DuPont created Teflon, for instance. And so is it that companies have gotten worse at innovating or is it that the nature of innovation now is so much different from the nature of innovation back in yeah. those days? So Paul Holland, who runs our venture investing practice, who was the president of the Western Association of Venture Capitalists and general partner at Foundation Capital for 20 years, wrote a great article for Huffington Post exactly on this topic called Dreamers and Disruptors. And what happened was, if you think about it, when the venture capital industry was founded just like 50 or 60 years ago, it hasn't been around that long, they were investing in all the dreamers, people who were creating whole new industries, right? So think about Reed Hastings founding pure software, basically fixing runtime errors in C and C++, right? Like nobody would heard about that, right? Now, fast forward though to about 10 to 15 years ago, now all the VCs, are basically investing in all the disruptors, going after all the large companies. Think Reed Hastings as the founder of Netflix, right? Basically disrupting the entire media industry. And so what happened was before that, the large companies could kind of be fat, dumb, and happy. They didn't have to basically innovate with the speed with which they have to do it now because they weren't facing that whole category of competitor, which are these startups fueled with billions of dollars of capital and zero orthodoxies and antibodies coming after them. I think that's the fundamental shift that basically has created kind of a little bit of an existential crisis among these large companies. But then I look at them and say, are you kidding me? Are you really afraid of these large companies, startups? You have ideas, you have talent, you have brand, you have channels, you have customers, you have capital. To your opening point, there is no reason that these large companies cannot beat the startups at their own game, cannot drive meaningful growth, both disrupting inside out and disrupting outside in. Just literally, there's no reason Airbnb could not have come out of the hotel industry, no law of physics, that Toyota could not have launched Uber. There's no reason that any of the big financial services firms couldn't have created Stripe. There's literally no law of physics there. It literally is just about how are they, what are they doing? And there's some friction. There's kind of three main things. No methodology. They don't seize the mothership advantage, right? There's too much friction inside. So you've got to deal with that. And that's where a lot of people, they forget that it's not just about incubating the ventures. There's a mothership you have to deal with and you have to seize that mothership advantage. And then I think the other big thing is that senior executives fail to grow. They fail to learn to adopt a venture capital mindset. They fail to basically be thinking in terms of option value, not net present value, in terms of a broader portfolio, and we can talk about that later, in terms of really looking at metrics that are more consistent with a startup's metrics versus the core and legacy business. And so, but there's, but they can do it. They 100% have the ability, and it's a teachable, learnable method. 
Well, look, you've run into these companies that are dysfunctional and helped them to become a little bit less dysfunctional. And I wonder if we can really dig into this diagnosis because look, if I see a company like Ford and I see them trying to innovate and I'm thinking, well, okay, that's my dividend right there. Like, don't do that. Give me the dividend so I can go buy some Tesla stock, right? I mean, okay. because I think I, I trust Elon Musk to use that money more effectively and generate a higher ROI than I trust you over here in, at Ford. So why doesn't Ford just hire like an Elon Musk and say, here's the dividend that we were going to give to our investors. We're just going to give it to you. You figured it out in-house, right? I mean, some people think that it's just as simple as recruiting the right people. I mean, what is it about the internal systems? And you mentioned a few things, and I, I do want to get into the CFO mindset versus VC mindset, but I think that the structural problems are a little bit deeper. Is it just that the things that got you to where you are at a mature organization are not the things that would help you to succeed? Is it impossible to be someone who's good at senior management at a top firm and also simultaneously be really good at supervising a growth factory or a venture factory? No, I actually think that it's absolutely possible. But, but I, and I want to I'll push back a little bit, right? This is not just a big company. This is not just their problem. I actually hold the financial markets accountable for the loss of hundreds of thousands of jobs, okay? So let me, so this, I'm actually, the name of the book came from The Unicorn Within, but it was actually came because I'm doing a piece of research called Valuing the Unicorn Within. And then Harvard Press loved that name more than Disrupting Inside Out, so they stole it. But I'm still doing this piece of research. And here's the fundamental issue. The financial markets value startups every single day, right? Mm -hmm. They, I am a kid of the Silicon Valley. I get it. But let's face it. They use a different set of metrics when they value those startups than they value the exact same venture that is being built inside of a large company. Mm -hmm. And this is why we believe the financial markets need a different set of metrics to be working with these large companies. And I believe that the financial markets bear as much responsibility for the reason why these large companies are not in innovating as the companies themselves. Because, uh, because what we're saying to them is, guys, you give a hall pass to brand new startups who get a five, 10, you know, five year hall pass and then get a 20 X multiple, mm -hmm. right? Just based on revenue growth and customer acquisition. All right. And they have none of the advantages that you were just talking about earlier that the large companies do. They don't have the channels. They don't have the 30 million customers that most of these guys do. The advantages that a big company has over a startup are absolutely phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And if you take a startup inside of a big company and you have to basically force it through the sieve of a quarterly earning based on the core and legacy metric of the large company, they will not survive. And so that, and my point to the financial analysts is, look, if Kodak goes out of business, that's not Kodak. That's not totally on Kodak. That's on you guys not letting them build a growth engine, not letting them get the flywheel effect, not giving them the same level playing field that a venture capitalist has, right? So that's, and that's one of the big things. The other big thing, frankly, is an accounting problem. This is where I need all of you professors. So the other problem for large companies is, listen, the only way you are going to drive growth that matters and have a financial impact on these large multi-billion dollar multinational public companies is if they can innovate at scale, right? 
if they can get to a portfolio of ventures. This is why I believe that most large companies need to look more like Berkshire Hathaway than they look like a monolith. Because what they need to be able to do, no VC invests in a single venture. They're always investing in multiple funds and multiple ventures in those funds. Large companies need that same opportunity. And if they do, and they marry it with what with the core assets, capabilities, competencies, everything, all the advantages that they have, they will produce far more unicorns than Silicon Valley or Berlin or London or any of the ecosystems of innovation have ever produced, okay? But here's one of the challenges. So number one is they've got to be able to get to a portfolio. The challenge with the way that happens right now is for a large company, if they make an investment in 20, doing 20 ventures, all those expenses have to go into their P&L. And then you take that P&L and those expenses, and then you drive a quarterly earnings announcement behind it, you make it almost impossible for these large companies to innovate. And so we have two things that must change to really preserve, and this really is about preserving jobs, right, at a minimum, but it's even bigger than that, and I'll come to that in one second. But if you can fix the structural problem where people, they can invest off their balance sheet in a multitude of their ventures, right, and then bring them back into the P&L when they are hitting their stride, not unlike what a VC would be able to do, then that solves one problem. And then if you get the financial analyst to basically say, and this is why we're pushing many large companies not to just do a venture factory or CVC, but create a growth division. Because if you create a whole division that's focused on growth, and we've got a number of clients that are doing it, then at least you can separate the metrics. And at least then the financial analyst can look at the metrics coming out of that division versus the core legacy metrics, and at least give these companies a blended multiple, a blended valuation that can reflect what the startups are getting versus what these others versus kind of how they get looked at today. It's now, a uh, huge opportunity. Yeah, now this is very provocative because, I mean, I teach a course in standard finance where I always talk about, oh yeah, markets are efficient and you just, if you take a tech company, add it to a manufacturing company, then the PE will be a blend and there's no free lunch and there's no accretion and dilution and all their nonsense you hear about. Like that's all, that's all going to be seen right through. But then I teach another course on behavioral finance and I'm like, ah, no, actually people do this stuff, right? But I guess the question is, right, if you took a really innovative company, let's say, a really innovative company, and then you just submerge, so I was thinking about like GM and Cruise, right? So if you take a really yep. innovative company and then you subsume it underneath the old legacy company, right? And the analysts are now going to apply the, like the old five PE multiple instead of the, the new 20x revenue multiple. Are they doing it because they actually think that this company is going to be run less well? And that's why you apply the lower multiple, right? Or is it because they just don't get it? And one other possibility is that the reason why they think it's going to be run less well is because they think that the people running it are focusing on those metrics. And then it becomes a little bit circular because if the managers are chasing after the KPIs they think Wall Street wants, then Wall Street's going to value them according to that metric. So is that a failure of communication on the part of the, say, the CFO or the CEO? Or, or is it actually reflect their inability to understand different metrics? It's a failure of imagination, number one. And you're assuming they think. These guys are not thinking. They're basically pumping through their spreadsheets, none of them have ever built anything. They have no idea how hard it is. They don't understand kind of what it takes to get something from zero to one. But yet they value, like, so they separate it. They basically assume big company, quarterly earnings, they do this. Startup, 
exciting, great, we're going to give you the benefit of the doubt, even though so many of them fail, right? We don't talk about that, but think about it. The average VC hears about 2,000 ventures, does due diligence on 200, invests in 20, and two make it. You know how much roadkill that is? That's a lot of roadkill, but we don't talk about that. But the, but, and that, those statistics could improve as well. But I think it's really important, like what these, what, and this is why the whole ecosystem really needs to basically wake up and understand what we're doing here. Two altruistic reasons we founded Mach 49 is this one that we're talking about that, look, most people are living longer and longer because of healthcare and technology, right? Those people, as much as we love startups, work for large companies and they're going to work 60, 70, 80 years. They need meaningful, purposeful work. This is why I believe most large companies should look more like Berkshire Hathaway, to be more like a portfolio of companies where people mm -hmm. can be closer to the customer, more agile. They can have entrepreneurial activities long into their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, depending on how long they're running. But the other big reason that I really believe that we have to help our large companies be able to do this and do it at scale from both a structural, from an accounting standpoint and from a financial markets valuation standpoint, is that all the big hairy problems that face the world from climate change to sustainability to poverty, disease, racism, need our large companies leaning in, able to disrupt, experiment, and innovate to solve these problems. Because governments are relatively dysfunctional or at best transitory. And as much as we love NGOs, they can't solve problems at global scale large companies can solve problems at global scale. And I believe that these large companies have the ability to do that. And I think that the reason why I'm so focused on the financial markets, re rethinking how they value these companies is because of the hundreds of thousands of jobs that are lost when a company basically becomes obsolete and because we need these large hairy problems solved and because they already know how to do it. They do it every day. A startup out of Silicon Valley or Berlin or London goes every day. It's not like I'm asking them to come up, do something new or different. I'm literally just asking them to apply the same metrics to a very similar case that, that they would to these other companies. Well, well, let's walk through some of the methodologies that you bring to these companies. I mean, you're helping them to develop internal incubators, internal accelerators, and ultimately growth engines or venture factories. And so, so how do you do this? It, it sounds like you're actually getting people who are already inside the company to join this new initiative. I like to say that the main job of an entrepreneur is to recruit a talent, recruit money, and recruit ideas. And so you're presumably trying to find a champion within the company who can do those three things. And I guess they need to do them in different ways because the money is going to come from, from the mothership and not from some from venture capitalists. And then recruiting the people will oftentimes mean going and getting people from other divisions of the company. It's not always going to be new people. And then the ideas, some of them are going to be external, but some of them might be some internal ideas that the company has abandoned or are sitting on the shelf. So do those entrepreneurs that you're identifying as kind of champions within the company, are they similar to the entrepreneurs that you would find at a startup or are they in some way different? Do they need a different skill set or can they have the same skill set? Well, so you're raising a really important point. So before we talk about kind of like the IDA incubate accelerate process. Let's talk about the people inside large companies who are typically 
who should be involved. And there's a particular group that everybody forgets about that is probably as important as anything. So you have, first of all, those internal entrepreneurs, all right? And those people exist in every large company. In fact, I talk about that there's typically three types of people in every company, and they're all very important to this process. There's the internal entrepreneurs. They're the idea minute people, right? They're not running the company, but they're the- well, they're, they're, also the people, they're also the people most likely to leave, I think, right? Correct. They are, but they don't have to. So this is why the CHROs, we're doing a lot of work with chief human resources and chief talent officers now because they're looking at us like, oh, wow, what you guys are doing- Number one is you're giving me hands-on leadership development content as opposed to the 19th century garbage of that I'm stuck with, that catalog of garbage I'm stuck with. And secondly, it gives them an opportunity to, f to attract and recruit and retain people who want to be entrepreneurial, but they also really value what the big company is. But so if you look at it, you've got those, but you've got entrepreneurs and not everybody, as you know, Greg, is meant to be an entrepreneur, right? It takes a special kind of person to handle the pace the lack of structure, the ambiguity, the need to talk to customers over and over again, getting up, getting shot down, getting up, getting shot down. You've got to love that kind of frenetic activity. Ultimately, though, those people will pass off to what we call the growth geniuses. You also need those people who are really, you know, those people who can grow something 20, 30, 40% a year. We do this in Silicon Valley. It's when we leave founders as founders, but we bring in more gray hair, no hair, an adult in the room to take them public, right? Mm -hmm. So these are the people who can put the systems and processes in place that can help you basically automate and scale. And then in a big company, you ultimately are gonna pass this off to those people who we call the efficiency experts. They're the people who know how to run a business, how to generate operating margin that can then be skimmed off to basically start the whole process again. So there are those three types of people, and they are not the same. They are not the same person. Sometimes you will have the same person, but just like in Silicon Valley, they're not the same person who started the company, took the company public, and then grew the company into a to a, to a powerhouse. So there are different types of people, and they all exist inside of large companies. So that's put that in that bucket. Now let me talk about the when you're doing venture building. What are the four types of teams that we put together that are very important? So number one are your new venture teams. Those are those internal entrepreneurs we were just talking about who are in essence the founding team. They are no different than a founding team outside. They just might not have had that opportunity. They couldn't take the risk, et cetera. But you, they're there. And it's really important that these are people who are passionate about the idea they're working on. Otherwise, you run into what we call the passionless founder, somebody who's been appointed to go incubate a venture. Okay, that doesn't work, all right? So the new venture team, great, that's your founding team. Then you have your new venture board. Those are the internal senior executives who are going to play the role of the venture capitalists inside. They must have a growth mindset. We tend to pair them side by side with a real venture capitalist so that when teams are doing reviews or they're having their board meetings, the senior executives get to hear what a venture capitalist would ask versus what a management review board member would ask, right? right? So they're learning right alongside their own entrepreneurs. So that's the second team that we work with. The third team we work with are the people who become what we call the Mach 49 inside. They become either the people who are running the venture factory or the CVC who are basically facilitating the process and keeping getting that flywheel going and building that pipeline and portfolio of new ventures or venture investments or strategic partnering. That's the third team. And those are the team that when we work with people, they're learning by doing. We're helping them fly the plane while they're building the plane. And we ultimately work ourselves out of a job because our goal is to build capability, not dependency. There is a fourth group. 
that is very important that nobody focuses on. And this is a team of people we call new venture advocates. If you think about, and these are the people who don't want to be entrepreneurs, they don't want to do the venture building, but they are entrepreneurial. And they are the people who, if you want transformation, you've got to bring into the process. These are the people who, we talk about Silicon Valley, and Silicon Valley was born in service of our startups. We grew up. So mm -hmm. Wilson Sonsini and Fenwick and Oric and all these law firms, basically, they don't look like a law firm out of London, right? If you look at Silicon Valley Bank, it doesn't look like the Bank of Chicago. And so what we basically say is you've got to build that internal innovation ecosystem. You've got to find the one page in one person in legal who's going to write the one page term sheet, not the 40 page term sheet when that venture wants to do a pilot. You need the person in marketing who's not going to be the brand police who's going to be willing to experiment with messaging. You've got to find the one person in procurement who, if you're a pet food company doing an integrated hardware and software product that you've never done before, and you need a hardware prototyper, and of course, that is not on your pre-approved vendor list, who's going to get it through procurement in two weeks, not three months? And those people exist as well. And so bringing them into the process does two things. Number one is, first of all, they learn the process. They get to be customer-driven, et cetera. They get to feel like part of the cool kids. So you don't create this have and have not inside with, oh, here are these cool entrepreneurs and people are getting to do this new stuff. And then there's those of you in the core and legacy business who are basically doomed to, to oblivion over time. You're basically getting people to lean in and literally be these new venture advocates. And that's those four teams are very important for you, any large global 1000 company or any company to basically get the flywheel going and ensure that you can develop a pipeline and portfolio of ventures that actually achieve success. Without those new venture advocates, you're just bumping up against the mothership all the time. And then those new venture advocates, we have a whole program called a growth fellows program or a new venture advocate program. They are so excited because they're now going back to their department, customer service, risk, procurement, finance, legal, IT going, hey, I've seen where these ventures are going. Here are the from to shifts we have to make as a department mm. to really help drive growth. So now everybody's involved in the growth story. Well, one thing you, you didn't mention a lot in the book is organizational politics. And in my experience, that seems to be the killer of so much innovation, right? And so I see the importance of having these advocates, but you said that key thing you want in an advocate is kind of a growth mindset, but don't they also have to be incredibly political, right? I mean, don't they have to understand how to get things done? I mean, mm -hmm. in most large legacy organizations, it's never the good idea that rises to the top. It's the idea that is advocated by the person who has the most clout, right? So do you need to be strategic as a CEO? Do you need to make sure that you have some of the most influential and powerful people in these roles? Well, so yes and no. I'll send you a link and you can share with people one of the most amazing ventures that Intel has done. It's called OmniBridge and I'll share it with you. And it's totally changed the world. Amazing story. The CEO is both deaf and mute. And it's just an extraordinary story. And what he's trying to do, bringing the deaf and hearing worlds together. And it makes total sense for Intel when you think about what their underlying technology assets are. So I think you said one thing that's the most important thing, and this is what I say to people all the time, is this has to be a top-down activity. 
You are never, if you are someone in the middle of the organization trying to basically push for a venture factory or a CVC, it is very difficult to get that done if you don't have a board and a CEO that's basically driving. So most of our clients are very enlightened CEOs and or C-suite executives who really understand they're sitting on a burning platform they need to grow because that's the number one thing. And then, yes, then your challenge isn't at that level. Then your challenge is at that middle management level. But partly it's because you get people who are just resentful of kind of what's happening. They don't get to participate in the activity. They don't get to be perceived as people who are part of the growth story, who are part of innovation, part of the new. They just, they go in day in, day out doing their same thing. So yes, what, well, it's you know, not, well, it's not just Well, it's not just that they're not considered cool, but it may actually undermine their KPIs, right? Like if this new group succeeds, it might mean that what they're doing is no longer valuable. And then they're going to see, they might lose their jobs. They see their, their paychecks shrink and their bonuses shrink and their, uh, their careers shrink. Right. Yeah. But that, that, that argument, you can make, you can combat that argument, right? Because you can put all the statistics I opened with in front of people. And so, and the reality is that most people want to be part of, they want to grow. They want to be creative. They just don't know how they can play a role, how they can be part of that. And so I think that the reality is, yes, this is the second big thing I said of the three buckets that basically hurt people's success rates. One is no methodology, so they basically throw spaghetti against the wall. Second is mothership friction, right? That is a big deal. The inability to seize the mothership advantage because you have too much inertia, too many antibodies, too many orthodoxies is a big challenge. But that's why you don't make a big pronouncement and have everybody gunning for you. You basically do it, either you figure out a way, so with like sometimes we'll run a venture competition. When you run a venture competition, we always make our clients put two buttons on the page. I have an idea I want to submit. And then, by the way, there's good ways and bad ways to do venture competitions. But there, I have an idea I want to submit. Or I don't have an idea, but I want to be part of a team. And when you do that, now you get people in legal. You find out where those internal entrepreneurs are in those other things. And then you start to build a program for you can HR. That's why the HR people are coming to us, because we can build a program around those people who maybe there's just not enough volume for them to be part of the actual venture building. But you can still bring the capability, bring the learning, bring the opportunities to them. So maybe they do an innovation project, not a venture, but there's still that opportunity to grow and to be part of something. And very few people, yes, there are some totally curmudgeon, grumpy people that just don't want to change and they're really concerned. But most people, especially if they have any shares in their company or their bonuses, like a rising tide floats all boats. And people know that. And people know that, hey, Kodak goes out of business. That's not good. That's like, that's 100,000 jobs being lost. So, so I, we don't really run in, I mean, people always raise that as an issue. We rarely run into people who don't want to be part of something that feels like it's the perpetual growth engine, that feels like they're going to be able to apply creativity or do something new. It's just not people's DNA. It's not in the human, it's not human nature. Where what happens is, if you do not have a very rigorous and robust model, people are nervous, right? They don't want to be the first rat through the snake. They don't want to take the risk because it might hurt their career. So that's why the pre-party planning before you do this is very important to make sure that people know that, hey, even if you don't, if your venture doesn't do well, 
that is not, that means in Silicon Valley, many VCs will invest in a CEO whose prior company failed because they learned a lot on somebody else's nickel. And now they're more well-prepared for what the next opportunity is. Well, look, a big part of innovation is, and creating the ingredients for growth is kind of filtration selection, right? So you start yeah. with a wide funnel of ideas and then you narrow it down. And there's two elements to that. One is, of course, killing the ideas that don't have any promise. And the other is fueling the growth of the ones that, that do. So is the problem in porting over what venture capitalists do well into the corporate setting that corporations start with too big of a funnel? I think you saw some, somewhere in the book where the funnel is too big, or is it that the funnel's too small. In other words, before they're willing to even consider an idea, they have to see the positive NPV. So is the funnel too big or too small? I saw, I hear both, both, both. stories. <laughs> yeah. It depends. Like it's, it depends on the company. So, so it's a really good question. And it, it, the biggest thing you want to do is avoid the garbage in and garbage out. Okay. So let's talk about like how people, let's talk about the ideate phase, right? And how do you do that? And it, it's more, it's more, it's not as straightforward as some people try to make it like, oh, all ideas are good or all ideas are bad or something because there are different ideas that have different tags to them, if you will. So people often will come to us one in one of three states. One state is they already have an idea. It's a pretty good idea and they're just ready to go, right? Mm -hmm. For those ideas, we make them do what we call a challenge framing session and, the, and it's very important that every company, if you have an idea that you love, that you do a challenge statement. And the challenge statement is basically a how might we that is, in essence, your hypothesis of the pain you're trying to solve, because then that gives you the first thing you're going to try to test. It is also the, the stakeholder map of who you think has that pain, because that tells you who you're now going to go interview. And then it also talks about the guardrails. So... Some, not You can't be all things to all people. So what's, what do you think? What's your hypothesis of what's in and what's out? So we worked with one company and they're integrated hardware, software, et cetera. And they said, oh, it doesn't have to have any hardware. Let's go look. Let's just open the funnel. And then you bring back ventures and some of them don't have hardware. They're like, where's the hardware? I'm like, okay. Now that's actually a guardrail. So now when you build your future challenge statements, you're looking at your those ideas, you're going to filter that. So that one gets to go forward. Now you have those companies that have too many ideas. They got a bunch of ideas and they don't actually know how to do that. And that's when we teach people to do what we call a portfolio review, very similar to what a venture capitalist might do with a twist. So with a portfolio review, you are putting it through kind of five filters. We do the same thing, by the way. We have a lot of clients who come to us who basically tried to incubate a venture on their own and that's not thriving and so we'll do what we call, we have a business called Venture Transformation. It's a venture turnaround business. We either will help it reach its full potential, we'll help turn it around, or we'll kill it, right? We'll teach you to kill it. So we have the venture building practice, but we also have a venture transformation for those in-flight ventures. Both the ideas and in-flight ventures go through the same, what we call assessment. And that's, it's looking at customer. It's looking at, hey, is there a potential business model out there? It's looking at, is it relevant to the mothership at all? Are there core competencies and assets you can leverage to help it? Is it viable? <laughs> can you make money? And is it, and the team, who's the team that's involved? Is this a team that can get you there or might you have to bring, augment that team with other people? So we'll go through it out of a portfolio review. 
what you're going to find are that those that the ventures or the ideas that they're thinking about actually bucket in different buckets. Some are actually, look, that's already ready to go. You just should be commercializing that. Some are, oh, you know what? That's a technology in search of a market. <laughs> so you got to do a little bit more work to see if there's any pain. It's great you have this technology, but if you build it, they won't necessarily come. So you got to basically do that. Some are what we call long horizon ventures, which is, wow, we know there's a lot of pain, but the technology isn't ready. Fusion is a really good example, right? We know that there's a lot of people who want fusion, but it's not ready yet. So what can we do now to start to grow the market? Autonomous vehicles is, a, is another one. We know autonomous buses are coming in seven years, but you can't then flip the switch at that moment. So what can you be doing now to anticipate that market? And then there are some ideas and ventures that are basically still really R&D. They, they aren't ready for prime time. They still need to be developed. So there's bucketing and there's other buckets. So there's bucketing that goes on in that portfolio review. And you're kind of swiping left, swiping right. What is really ready to go in the upper right-hand quadrant and really incubate now? So that's the, if they have too many ideas. It's a very rigorous and disciplined process that we teach people to do. But you know, that's what venture capitalists do all the time. Then there are those people who don't have enough ideas. So what do you do with those? There's two paths typically that they take. Number one is what we call a domain exploration and ecosystem mapping. So we had one large company who said, look, we're really interested in food, water, and road safety. Well, guess what? You can't incubate water. <laughs> mm -hmm. You can incubate a zero water home, which is what we did with one of our clients, and so what we will often do with those people is that we will do a domain exploration. We'll teach them how to do that ecosystem mapping where they go out and you segment the market, you figure out what's there, you see where other players are, you see where the startups are, you see where the money's going. Is it VC money, CVC money, private equity money, corporate money? And then you basically just map that domain and you figure out where the white space is and you overlay what their capabilities are with where the white space is or you figure out who they could partner with or who they could invest in, and that helps them get to really good ideas. The other way is what we talked about earlier, which is you can run a venture competition, which does two things. It shakes out where your internal entrepreneurs are, and you don't do that randomly. You literally, you give them challenge statements. You make sure that you don't get some giant suggestion box, which is not useful, and you make it hard, which is counterintuitive for people to apply because you don't want people who, you want people who are passionate about this idea. So those, from an ideation standpoint, it's either you got an idea ready to go that you basically filtered, you got too many ideas, you need to do a portfolio review and figure out what's really worthy of taking into the incubate process. You don't have enough ideas, you run a venture competition or you do a domain exploration to basically see kind of, okay, what feels right for our organization to take forward. Now, there are two critiques that I think are perhaps inconsistent that are frequently applied to internal innovation projects. And they're both related to financing, right? And so one is that the CFOs, the folks with the money, they underinvest in, in innovation because they insist on proof of viability before they'll part with any cash. But then there's another critique, which is that they spend too much money, right? They like Absolutely. They'll, they'll, start, they'll start throwing money and just keep throwing it and they don't know when they're supposed to stop. And the, the genius of venture capital is that uses this staged financing where you have milestones and they're very rigorous about it. And so this is the thinking like a VC that you mentioned earlier. So do you need like two CFOs? Do you need like your CFO for your legacy business and then like your CFO for the growth business? Or can you, can you have a C CFO that can toggle back and forth? 
Now, you can have a CEO that CFO that absolutely toggles back and forth. The thing that we say to people is, look, what's the fundamental underlying principles of what we do? Understand customer pain. Everything you have to do has to be customer driven. We say customer insights are the currency of credibility. Everything else is uninformed opinion. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's super important. So you should not be investing in anything that you don't have people by the end of Incubate raising their hands saying they're willing to do pilots. That's why we call it customer development. We don't call it user research. So number one is understanding that customer pain. Number two is you marry it with the art of the possible. What are the current trends, technology available to solve that pain, right? Uber doesn't exist if we don't have mobile phones, real-time payments, GPS, et cetera. So what is it that's available now that can that solve that pain? But the third thing is probably the most important thing that you're talking about right now, which is you must place a series of small bets. If you think about Silicon Valley, we look at funding like an onion. Every layer of onion is a layer of risk. Could be financial risk, technical risk, market risk, or in the case of a large company, governance risk. You love it to death, you starve it of oxygen. And the, every single internal entrepreneur must build a very rigorous business and execution plan designed to remove the greatest amount of risk on the least amount of capital. And this is exactly to your point. They must build a plan that says, okay, here's the risk. Here's the pilot, small bet, experiment I'm going to run that proves I can mitigate that risk. Here are the metrics and milestones that demonstrate, Mr. CFO, I've mitigated that risk. And now I'm going to unlock the next round of funding, just like a VC, do it again, then unlock the next round of funding. And the challenge is, to your point, is that either they do the, hey, we're going to put a lot of money in it. And if you do that and that venture fails, then guess what? Everybody's like, oh, that experiment didn't work. Never doing that again, which is not the right answer. We would tell people, we're looking at ventures. When we do the venture transformation work, we had one client who basically, they were spending $20 million a month on their venture, on, on accelerating their ventures. There's not a venture capitalist on the planet that would allow that kind of a burn rate. Mm -hmm. And so we teach them that discipline. You've got to remove the greatest amount of risk on the least amount of capital. But you do have to invest the capital. You just have to do it in a rigorous way, just like you would do anything. And so that that's kind of meets them in the middle, right? Between too much money, not enough money, but it's disciplined money when you put it in. And guess what? If they don't hit those metrics and milestones, then you are going to kill it. But you're going to kill it when you haven't invested so much so it's not so painful to kill. Then if you put a big chunk of money in at the beginning, then you just keep throwing good money after bad because you don't want to admit it was a failure. And it'll look bad if you basically take $20 million and basically torch it. Well, another concern that people have about kind of internal entrepreneurs is that the money that they're spending is sometimes funny money, right? Like if you're using internal resources, if you're using internal IT, if you're using kind of internal teams, then the transfer price is an artifact of accounting. And so sometimes you're using up all these resources and it's essentially shows up as being free. In other cases, right, somebody wants to stuff the new project with a, with some overhead so they can get it off their P&L. Whereas if it's a, if it's a pure startup, like well, cash is cash, like you got to pay real money. <laughs> like, and so, so it becomes a little bit harder to evaluate, right, whether or not they're achieving the kinds of goals that you've set out for them. Okay. And no, even, if we, you're thinking, even, well, even, if you're thinking, even if you're thinking about customer met metrics, if you, if part of your customers are internal customers or partner customers, 
then if they say, yeah, okay, I'll buy this, right? Well, it's not real money. It's kind of internal budget money. So how do you make sure that milestones and the metrics and cost numbers and all of that are real numbers and not sort of artifacts of funny money and central planning? I love that question because it's you're exactly right. So number one, by the end of it, they have a very rigorous and robust business plan that we have literally CFOs to go who are startup economic people who help them build those plans. And we teach the internal, the Mach 49 inside people how to do that because you are asking a very important question. And it is both ways. We do not allow them to assume this stuff is for free. We actually make them build it into their operating plans, into their use of funds, whether they're taking it inside or outside, those numbers are there. So that's number one. Number two is it is a big red flag when we take to the new venture board that your internal software development people are costing or have put in a bid for this transfer pricing exactly because they're stuffing it. Their transfer pricing is 5x what I can go outside and get. Guess what? I'm going outside to get it. I'm not going to stay inside the company. We're going to go outside for those resources. And that's part of what we teach the new venture board at the very beginning when we do the onboarding. We're like, look, we will use the resources of the company that are cost effective and relevant to the burn rate that we have basically committed to. So it's a big wake up call for them. And that's why sometimes venture factories don't use the shared services. They basically create their own legal person because it's too expensive to use the internal legal person. So that's part of when we do venture factory design, there's a whole blueprint that we go through. So they are making every decision by design, not by default. The third thing though you just said, which is customers. We also do not count internal customers. So we only, this is only a viable, now, if you are a customer service department or the risk department leveraging the methodology to reinvent your department, which we have clients that are doing all the time, they're like, wait a minute, I can use this. We have, the risk department has internal customers. They need to have a service offering to those customers and they need to have a business model that's functional to basically get a return on the investment for the company of their services to the company. So we do have clients that are doing that. But if you're looking at creating a new line of business, a new venture, that and they, if they, it's great to interview the customers you have, but you really also want to focus on the customers you don't have. And so venture is not viable if it cannot grow the market, right, in some way. So it's it is again about the discipline and what the expectations are, what the bar is, how high you hold the bar for these ventures to actually jump through these hoops. But we have had situations where we literally went, said, okay, we're going outside. And the CEO's like, yep, you're going outside. I had no idea that the transfer pricing was just so egregious. And it was just ridiculous. And it was even worse because they had just assumed that they would get the deal because they're the internal vendor. Mm -hmm. And we're like, mm, no, doesn't work that way. Now, you've said throughout the book that it's really important to get buy-in from senior executives. And the, the senior executives have a very important role in the rollout of this growth engine. I'm wondering, do just like financial analysts have to rethink how they value companies that have a growth element, do CEOs need to kind of rethink who is adding value to the company? I mean, I think a lot of CEOs will look at P&L that's attached to a name and they'll say, well, you're the biggest contributor, right? Whereas this growth thing, like, what's this? I mean, this is an afterthought. I mean, should they be, if they're looking for the next generation of leaders, should they be thinking maybe about the folks that are doing more of the innovative stuff? Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent, right? 
I mean, if you're, if it, I think they know it. If literally the statistics from Davos were 40% of those CEOs of big companies think they will be out of business in 10 years if they don't transform, there, it's already on their agenda that they need to be doing something different, right? I mean, at least 40% of them. I don't know what the other 60% were thinking. So I didn't, re- I didn't see that statistic. But I think it is, that's a big number. That is million, that's millions and millions of jobs in that 40%, right? And so, and the other thing is, and this is why the CHROs are so interested in kind of what we're doing, because they have to recruit and retain the next generation of talent. It cannot all go into startups, right? Like we need to be reviving these large companies and we need to keep them going. We need to get that happening. So I think it is, I think that a lot of these got these CEOs, and I think frankly, this generation of CEOs also are surrounded by their children who are pushing them in that direction as well, right? So I think there's a the board are looking at, it, the shareholders are looking at, it, activist shareholders. When you have BlackRock basically writing the their their letter to saying, hey, we're going to start looking at your ESG. It, this is ESG is no longer the purview of an activist shareholder. It's like the biggest shareholder on the planet is telling you if you don't like hit the mark, then we're not going to invest in you. It's getting a top down and it's getting bottoms up push right now. And I think that is a really, really critical element of these guys looking at it. But it's also why more and more they're realizing, okay, it's not just a venture factory, although venture factory is fine. You don't have to create a growth division, but the venture factory is still a place that you can measure separately versus throwing everything over the wall. Like it's fine if you are there. And we have a lot of clients who they have a venture factory, they don't have a growth division. So with the growth division, they'll just keep the ventures and graduate them as their own lines of business. It With a venture factory, often what they'll do is they'll keep them a certain amount of time, then they'll give them back to a business division. The key there is that's fine. You just can't give it back to the business division too early. It's not fair to the person, the he, she, or they, who is running that division. It's not fair to them to hand them a brand new startup when they plan their budget for you a year ago. And their performance bonus is based on the metrics based on that budget. Now you hand them this fledgling really cute thing that isn't going to, that's going to suck money out. It's not going to be basically contributing and expect them to love it. What you need to do is keep it in the venture factory long enough for it to have demonstrated product market fit and early revenue so that then it's a shiny object in the sales, in your sales bag that people now want to basically focus on because now it can add value to them as opposed to basically be a drain on the resources that they never they weren't asked to anticipate a year ago. So I teach at a, a couple uh, business schools and the students are always looking for work after they graduate, obviously. And so many of the students here in the Bay Area, they all want to go in and work for startups. It's usually a pretty small number of people that say, yeah, I want to go work for one of these legacy companies. So a lot's changed in, since I was back in school. And so what would you say to somebody who's graduating? Like if there were companies out there that wanted to build out innovation within and they're doing a pretty good job of it. Is there still a difference in sort of the type of person or the skill set that would be attracted to say a pure startup versus corporate innovation division? What are the differences? Uh, Well, I think there's two differences. One is compensation, right? Mm -hmm. So how are they? So, so I would flip it around. I would be saying to corporates, 
what are you guys doing to go recruit this best and brightest and get them into your organization? And how are you going to walk the talk on the promises that you make? And because if they don't, then I would tell these guys have their risk profile is very, they're happy to take lots of risks at that age when they're graduating from the universities or their graduate school programs, right? And so you wouldn't tell them to go into a big company unless it was a big company who was really getting the flywheel going and going. At the point at which if you have a company that actually is doing that, I think they are a better choice for most students coming out of any university, any graduate school program than a startup for the following reason, which is if they get, and I'm a big believer, we do a lot of work around compensation with our large company, with our large company clients, because what we say to them is, listen, you already pay your salespeople for performance. There's no difference between paying your salespeople. Just like I say to the financial analysts, you already have a metrics that you're using, just apply them to these companies. I'm not asking people to change the way they think or do already. They mostly have performance-based compensation systems for their chief revenue officer, their BD people, their salespeople, right? Well, if you look at a venture, either the CVC or a venture factory team or the venture themselves, if you hit the net metrics and the milestones, you hit the numbers, you can give them phantom shares. And those phantom shares in the form of a performance bonus that, oh, by the way, they could reinvest for the next tranche and the next tranche, it's not very difficult. If you do that, then they're getting rewarded for the upside just as any business development person would be rewarded for the upside. If you have the, so, so because for a lot of students, they want the flexibility, they want the creativity, they want to be able to go. But if you have a big company that's basically doing that, which a lot of them are, many are looking to do, then you've got the compensation thing to, to look at, which is, can I make more money in a startup? Because I can be, it's a real cap table. We could go public. We can, we could get bought, et cetera. But if you can, mimic that inside, maybe not as much of an upside, but some upside, because the thing that you don't have in a big company as much as you have in the startup is risk, right? So with a venture, if it's doing well and it's hitting its metrics and the company has set up the pool of assets correctly, then, and this is why we're doing so much work on being able to structure these ventures kind of off the balance sheet, not off the P&L, then you don't have to go hat in hand to a VC every three months and try to raise money, which how fun is that? It's not very much fun. You don't have to worry about whether or not you have customer success people that can actually fix the problems real time. You've got the embedded resources. You don't have to worry about finding your CFO to go, your chief marketing officer to go, all these other resources. You, you have those things built in. And so you actually can move further faster. And oh, by the way, you have 30 million customers that you can go after. You have a built-in channel. You have built-in customers as opposed to having to start from scratch. So, so I really believe that in, in the end, the more that these companies get the flywheel going, the more they're committed to it, the more they actually set them up right as opposed to throwing spaghetti against the wall, the easier it will be for them to recruit talent to basically come after it. The other thing that I love about the large companies is, oh, by the way, there are a lot of entrepreneurial people who are in big companies who couldn't do a startup because they're 50, they've got kids in high school, they can't afford the risk of that. Mm -hmm. But they're super entrepreneurial. And oh, by the way, they're also super experienced. And so they actually make better entrepreneurs than the 25-year-old who's like never done it before. And what people forget about is they get really excited about their stars in their eye, Google, Facebook, Airbnb, Stripe. Etc., but they forget about the 
200, the 2000 that go to 200, that go to 20, that yield two. And so big companies, again, if they can get the infrastructure, the internal innovation ecosystem right, and just get that flywheel going and literally make it a factory, it's why I chose the word factory, like there's no reason you can't automate, kind of make this, a, this almost as a, you can make it, you can't make it work. It is way more compelling to do this with a big company than it is to basically go flounder around as a startup and be one of the roadkill. Yeah, a couple of years ago, I was reading an article in, I think it was Business Week, and they had surveyed all these executives at large companies and then asked them, what is the, the skill set that you really want from your MBAs? And being entrepreneurial was actually towards the bottom of the list. I was a little shocked by that. I couldn't figure out why that would be the case. And I think after talking to some senior leaders at large companies, they said, well, what we don't want is we don't want these entrepreneurial people to come and then leave and start companies. And so I think it's not just about attracting them, but it's also about retaining them and giving them a reason to stick around and All allowing right. them to do something that is at least as fun as what their classmates are doing <laughs> over there in, in the startup world, but also be able to kind of pay down their student loans at the same time. Exactly. So, exactly. Exactly. Linda, but I think, yeah, it's amazing. I really think that there's so much. And again, I mean, I think there's, I love startups, right? I am a child of the Silicon Valley. So I'm a big, I'm a big believer, but our big companies are where most people are going to be employed. Our big companies are where at scale, we are going to be able to change the world. And I think that if people if we can basically create the systems and processes and the environment that they can thrive just as a startup can thrive, there I'd put my money there. Well, Linda, thank you so much for joining me. Maybe someday you'll do some of this work for uh, some universities. <laughs> I think they, oh, no. they, they could use a, it might be a little bit more work than you're willing to put in because they, they need it. Well, a I don't more. know. It's kind of interesting though, because we are getting, you know, it's funny because a lot of people are using, because the book is a how-to guide, right? Yeah. So a lot of universities are now starting classes around leveraging the book. And when they're leveraging the book, then the students can look around at things that are happening in the universities, leverage the methodology in the book to basically help the university. So hopefully it'll be like taking your pocket and pulling it inside out that, that they'll basically be driving the change in yeah. the universities at the same time. But as you said, it, it needs to be top down in, in many organizations. Well, anyway, Linda, thank you so much. We could talk all day. I really I enjoyed reading the book finally. I think thank last you, time Greg. I met with you, I hadn't yet had a copy in my hands. And so it's right. great to see the result of all your hard work and hope to see you again sometime soon. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, it's been, we've been very excited. It was, it's just had tremendous kind of response and I feel very humbled and blessed by kind of all the support that we've gotten. So thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.